Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes of the show, as well as articles and information about my one-on-one alignment coaching, then you can head to my website. It's simonjedrew.com. If you do have the means to support the show, then I'd love to see you in my Patreon community. Just go to patreon.com forward slash simonjedrew, where you'll also get access to over 240 episodes recorded before 2020. But for now, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, thank you so much for spending your time with me here on the podcast today. And we've got a couple of great guests for you. And Kai Whiting is back on, and, and obviously we all love Kai. He always recommends an excellent guest for the show. And and also we have alongside Kai, Aldo Danusi, who has never been on the show. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. So uh, Aldo Danusi, he is a doctor in ancient philosophy, and he has published the first translation of Epictetus's Discourses, Book 1, in Portuguese, among other works. Uh, He is the founder of the Brazilian Epictetus Porticus, a group of researchers and followers of Epictetus in Brazil. So when Kai recommended Aldo to come on the show, Kai said to me, listen, Aldo is Stoicism in South America. He is Stoicism in Brazil. And uh, and because he literally introduced, uh, you know, Epictetus's works to Portuguese speaking people. Uh, and, and so he's he's really got such a wealth of knowledge, uh, a wealth of wisdom, and he shares that with us on the episode today, uh, talking mostly about uh, Stoic communitarianism uh, and how there's cultural differences around the world uh, in how people kind of pick up Stoicism, how they interpret it. And uh, it was just a wonderful conversation and, uh, you know, a, a good friend of Kai's and now I hope to consider him as a good friend of mine as well. So I hope that you enjoy this episode with Kai Whiting and Aldo Danusi. Kai and Aldo here. Uh, you know, guys, thank you so much for being here in the first place. I'm, you know, Aldo, I'm particularly excited, obviously, to, to chat with you about everything that you're doing. Um, for the South American portion of Stoicism, right? And um, But as is usual, whenever you, Kai, recommend an excellent guest uh, to come on the show, I'm going to start with you. I want you to tell myself and the audience, why did you s- say that we have to get Aldo on the show? What was it about Aldo and his work that excited you so much? Um, and then, Aldo, I'll bring you in and you can kind of give your own little um, summary of, of who you are, what you do, and, and, and why you're in, uh, into Stoicism at the moment. Well, I'm Aldo Dinucci. I'm professor of ancient philosophy at the Federal University of Sergipe, Brazil. And I'm also the editor-in-chief of Prometheus, a Brazilian journal of philosophy. And I have published, among other books, translations from Greek to Portuguese of the Manual of Epictetus and Epictetus Discursus. Actually, I started to, to, to research Epictetus 20 years ago and I was reading a French translation, translation of the Inquisition of the manual, and I realized that realized that we had not no translation available in Portuguese of it, and I started to translate it from Greek to Portuguese uh, twenty years ago, and I published it at the first time in two thousand seven the first uh, edition of my translation. 
and then uh, Alfredo Julien, a professor here of, of ancient history here where I live. We, we made a, a second translation, a bilingual translation of the manual, and we published it at Coimbra, at Coimbra Press yeah, in Portugal, you know. It's a very important press to Portuguese speakers. And now we have this translation available for everyone who speaks Portuguese in the face of Earth, because the, the, press, the Coimbra, Coimbra Press uh, makes this translation available for everybody in PDF form. And this year, oh, sorry, last year, and in, uh, or in the beginning of this year, we, we, uh, I published also the first translation ever of Epictetus Discursus, book one, uh, also by Coimbra Press, and it is available all, uh, in PDF form for free for, for everybody. So in the first time, uh, we have the, the, this, this material available for, for everybody. And as Kay said, it's not easy task to translate it from Greek. It's a very difficult task, mm. uh, especially when you don't have any, any other translation available in your language. One thing is when you read something in another language, as in English, as French, uh, or the very different thing is when you put it in your own language. Mm. So, uh, uh, some five years ago, I had the idea of making a meeting here where I live, uh, calling all the Brazilians who study Epictetus, and then uh, some of them come to, to, to Sergipe. You know, Brazil is a very big country, it's like Australia, it's a continental country, and they, they came, some, something about 10 people came here, and he had the idea of founding uh, of, uh, the Porticus of Epictetus. And now it's working since uh, 2016. And we have both people working with translation, as me, people doing research, academic research, and people doing uh, contemporary stoicism. Mm. Which uh, I think is very important, also. Yeah, and and what, what what's so exciting about what you're doing, Aldo, is it, it's such a pioneering task, right? Like to to be the the first person to kind of translate Epictetus into Portuguese is brilliant. I mean, I, I don't know if you've run the numbers, but how many more people in the world does that open up the words of Epictetus to? Um, you know, ha, what's that population like? Um, and, and Kai, I want to bring you in here for a moment. Um, Kai, you obviously, you know, as, as I said at the start of the episode, you, you recommended Aldo to come on the show. What, what is it about Aldo's work that, and what he's doing that inspires you so much? And you also wanted to delve into a little bit of the cultural side of, of the, the translations as well. I want you to kind of ask the first question, if you will, because I know that you, that was an interesting way to go down. I think, well, I, I first became aware of the problem that Aldo is attempting to solve because mm. I was I was not running, but I was helping or co-running uh, a store here in, in Lisbon. And I refused to speak in English actually during that meeting. We only spoke in Portuguese. Uh, 
So I've been out a bit out of practice because unfortunately the group really folded. Part of the problem was that we had no primaries. So I could easily, you know, I could rock down to the, you know, to, to a library and try to find something. And there was really nothing in Portuguese about Marcus Aurelius, for example, really nothing of quality. I mean, you might get the odd translation and you'd be like, I'm not really sure how good this translation is. And it's kind of like, uh, I, I fear it's like the kind of thing that you had when you were, say, Muslim back in the day, like 18, you know, 1850s, you'd have texts that Christians translated, but you wouldn't have a text that a Muslim actually translated. Mm-hmm. So you have like Pickfall, and he suddenly translates the Quran into English as a Muslim. That's a fundamental difference. When you have somebody who's really into this service and really understands it and translates, that's a completely different thing to somebody who has happens to speak and it's still, I mean, it's still excellent skill. It happens to speak, um, let's say, uh, or read ancient Greek, and then speaks Portuguese, writes Portuguese as a native. If they're not, if they don't have a Stoic background, then they're going to see it through a lens that maybe isn't always helpful. Well, that's that's still good. We should have some translations, perhaps, by people that do that. But I think that you, in English, you've got people like Chris Gill who check the translations. Who really, a professor, I should say, Professor Christopher Gill, who check translations and make sure that yes, this is in in line with Stoic thought. So we had a massive problem. We just had no text with which to have a discussion. <laughs> as I could, as I said, I could get an English text and we could read it in English because in, in Lisbon, a lot of people at least speak enough English to do that, uh, to have this conversation. But the, but the inability to think in one's own language stops them being able to apply stoicism in their own language. And it became a very academic endeavor because they were always having to think in English to discuss hepatitis and it's like, okay, well, what do you do when you're at home and you want, you know, you really want to seek straight wisdom and everything you have in your head is in a different language. And that's problematic. So when I found out that Aldo was doing this work, I was like, I needed you. <laughs> I needed to know of you before, before we folded because we folded in part because it was very difficult to attract new uh, people, people interested in stoicism when they go, well, what, what can we do? I, I can't even get the book in the library. I can't get the book in the... It, there's nowhere I can go to get this information. Therefore, it's not useful to me. And I'm not an academic person. And the kind of concepts that you're talking about, they don't make sense to me because even your contemporary historic framework is still very much an, you know, very much an Anglo-Saxon one. You're still thinking with the mindset of an English speaker, which of course I was, because I was, for well, one, I am an English speaker natively, but also because I was writing in, in English. So when I usually, well, I don't write in Portuguese very often at all, but I was writing academic material, for example, in Spanish. And so the, I, the way I was thinking about, in this case, mineral resources, was completely different. The cultural context I was using was different. So the way I wrote was different, because the, yeah. like, when I think about expressions and then what it means to people like a particular word what it means completely different understanding to if i could translate that into english um so this is really problematic and i found that alan was doing this work and i was like wow like this is this is pioneering whatever i might do in the environmental field okay that's pioneering in one aspect but I, and i'm taking stoicism into areas that haven't really considered stoic application but this is so much bigger to take it to like you're asking there's 200 million Brazilians, there's 10 million Portuguese. Uh, so we're talking at least, you know, I reckon 250, 300 million people suddenly being able to access uh, Stoic primaries. But more importantly, Aldo didn't, didn't really say this, but his community is also translating my texts, uh, Donald Robertson's texts. 
transcripts so that people aren't just thinking about the primaries, but really about the application of, of uh, stoicism in a contemporary context. And that's a lot of work. That is a fundamental amount of work. And there's not a lot of credit. There's not a lot of credibility. You can't sit there and say, yes, I know Kai wrote like five papers, but I translated 150. In academia, that doesn't yeah. even count for anything. I mean, and we need to, and that's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And, and I thought, no, we need to celebrate Aldo's, uh, not just Aldo, but Aldo and his team's work because it's a lot of work that goes beyond, you know, goes beyond just writing the odd paper here and there. So I was really excited because it is like being a pioneer on the ground. It is doing something which is fundamentally important. It's opening people's eyes and ears to stoicism in a time, you know, for COVID and the unrest, not to go into, but the unrest that you feel in, that I am aware of in, in Brazil, you're opening people to an alternative way of looking at the world. Like you don't have to panic. You just have to have a good framing. And I think stoicism is not the framing, but certainly one that you could use. So for me, it was like, we need to, we need to celebrate other, we need to show other people that, in their country, for example, they're Latvian and they want to have stories in their country, perhaps they could contact Aldo and Aldo could explain like, these were the challenges that we had. So I think my question to Aldo would be, what was the biggest um, emotional challenge for you to think, to have on your shoulders, because I know that you do, have on your shoulders like at least you know, 200 million Brazilians who, are, who if you don't do your job, don't even hear about stories. I was, that was my question. So what, what is the emotional pressure that you feel when you're taking a country on your back and your team, I know you're spreading it out, and, you, and without you doing your work or directing the work that is done, uh, these people don't have access to Marcus Rullius, for example. Well, mm. uh, in the beginning, the first thing uh, I, I thought is that uh, when, after reading the manual of Epictetus, I, I thought that uh, it, it should be in Portuguese because it helped me so much. I, I read it in a moment when I was in need of this, you know? It, uh, existentially speaking, it was very important for me. It, it helped me a lot in that moment, 20 years ago. And I, I, I thought with myself, I thought to myself, uh, it should be in Portuguese, available for everyone. So uh, the, my first... Uh, my, my my first idea was this. So uh, uh, let, let me show you the, 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 the editions. So in 2007, we published this, this small edition. It's a very small one. It's an old by now. Uh, it's a, a dissemination edition, you know? There is a popular introduction to everyone who, who can who wants to, to know Epictetus, so it's a, it's academic for um, by one side because uh, uh, I'm academic. I have a, a doctoral degree on, on philosophy, but uh, I made it for uh, uh, dissemination purpose. And then some years later, we publish uh, we translate also uh, Stockdale. Yeah. yeah. 209 in Portuguese, it's very important. So I, I like this, this, this book. We translated also Epictetus Fragments and Bilingual Edition. And uh, then we have the, the Portuguese edition, the press. You know, the, uh, the, there is a very little difference between Portuguese 
spoken in, in Portugal and the Portuguese spoken here. We can understand each other easily. And uh, it's all, almost the same thing in written language. So it's the academic uh, edition made in Portugal with a, an academic introduction. And there is also, I don't have it here, uh, the bilingual edition, as you said. And uh, as I work in a federal university, I have the, the, the preoccupation of uh, sending to people the, the, this, this very cheap edition, this to people uh, to uh, every part of Brazil for free. I, I, I made available uh, an email. They just uh, did, just need to send me the address, and we sent it for free through the university. You know, mm. so uh, I think uh, we sent something about one thousand oh, wow. uh, manuals of Epictetus, and uh, and we made it available also in PDF. They are all these works are available for free in internet in PDF. And the last time I, I checked, uh, we have something about 50,000 50, downloads. Wow. And I checked it last time, time into all 15. Okay. And we, we have also a book on Stoic Logic. I think uh, we talked about this. I, yeah, I want a copy of that book. Yeah, you can, if you've got a PDF, I definitely want that. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a kind of... Uh, um, manual of stoic logic, like the, Isago, uh, the ancient Isagoge, you know? And oh, and that, and there is a, the, it is the, the new edition of the, 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 this edition we, we, we do in university. And recently, we have a, a, a great press in Brazil also uh, publishing it. Man, and you can see that why why I'm so enthusiastic oh, about getting very beautiful one. of course. And you, wow. you can buy it through Amazon, and you can buy finally you can buy it in Brazil in the libraries finally, because mm. you know Brazil is too big. You cannot send it to the libraries for all our limitations. But by now you have an edition from a commercial uh, press. And it's available for, for everyone in Brazil physically, which is important, mm. very important also. It's a beautiful edition. So uh, oh, that's, I, I, that's so awesome. The preoccupation of making this material the, the, the available for, for everyone in Brazil, both in physical format and both in, in PDF also. Mm. I mean, by now, I, I, I made it. It's, it's, it's a reality by now. Yeah. Well, th thank you so much for showing all that, Aldo. Seriously, this is um, and and fifty thousand people getting access to to those works. It's it's like uh, you know, literally life changing literature right there, going out to people who need it, and um, and, and that's so awesome. I, I want to ask a couple of things. So, firstly, sticking to the kind of um, I guess the, the cultural uh, shift of bringing something like uh, you know. Epictetus to to the Portuguese language, and and you're obviously uh, talking with a lot of people who are taking on a lot of these principles, reading these works. Uh, what do you find are some of the, I guess you could say that 
challenges or opportunities of merging the cultures of, say, uh, you know, ancient Western philosophy and, you know, South American culture. Do you find that people really take it on quite easily? Are there any cultural divides that kind of, you know, get in the way of living a stoic life um, or, or is it a pretty seamless integration? Uh, it's a very interesting question. Uh, we, 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 we created our group in Brazil uh, without knowing what was happening in Europe about the new stoicism and everything. Just in the, in the last few years, I started to, to contact you in, in Europe and, and North America. And we realized there, that there is a great difference between your approach your uh, of stoicism and ours we realize that in europe both in europe and in the united states uh, the, the approach is very individualistic you know and in brazil it it, it was since the beginning communitarian for some reason i don't know uh, why exactly so uh, our approach is communitarian from the beginning. Yeah, it's something that uh, is missing. I, I, we talk, uh, you, me and Kai talk a lot, a lot about this. Something that is missing in, in European stoicism. Mm. Yeah, and and I wanted to discuss this with you today. Yeah. I wanted to discuss this with you today, this, um, the communitarianism sort of, uh, focus that you have. Um, and cause, cause that might, you know, that was certainly a new word to me. I didn't really think about it. Um, you know, when, when I first heard it, I was like, okay, well, what is this? Um, and I know for a lot of the listeners, it's going to be the same case. Um, you know, what is communitarianism? How does it relate to stoicism? So could you, yeah. What is communitarianism? How does it relate to the works of, say, Epictetus? And, and I know we can talk about Masonius Rufus as well, but um, yeah, what's the relation there? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly how to, to, to say this word, Greek word in English, oikiosis. Do you, do, do you understand yep. it? Oikiosis. Yep. Uh, oikiosis, yeah. yeah. Oikiosis. The historic concept of appropriation. Uh, according to this concept, uh, the... the any animal appropriates uh, uh, the, the environment in different ways. Uh, in the first place, he, 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 he bec becomes aware that he is something distinct from the world. In the, the, the second place, he, uh, he uh, I, I don't know how to express this exactly in English, let me try. Uh, he uh, tried to 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 save himself. How, help me, Kai, with this. How do you okay, say? Okay, so yeah, you've got you've got the idea that you, as a as a particularly as a mammal, <clears throat> you you first recognize that you, there is a world in that you are some you're in it but separate to it. Then you realize, okay, I need to survive. So you become very much like the typical baby that screams, and the baby is aware that if they cry under normal circumstances, okay, so assuming they have parents that actually care for them if they cry they will receive something and mm -hmm. they form this bond of love and a very strong bond and it's not just their bond obviously the mother particularly has this bond too 
for different reasons. But their bond is fundamentally, this is the person that feeds me, this is the person that keeps me warm. And so love is a very selfish thing. But as mm. the child or even animal grows, they become, they, they become more, more of an individual but less individualistic because they, they realise that what's good for them is actually good for the community. It's not just, that's why as, you know, as a five-year-old, you can't cry all the time because your parents will be like, no, you know, like, what are you doing? Even at five, you can, you can still cry, but not to the extent that you cry when you were six months old because you suddenly realize, yes, I'm, you know, I'm growing as an individual and you become less individualistic because you, you know, without going into psychology, you know, it doesn't, doesn't tie completely in with the, what psychologists would say about phases, but you become less individualistic and more collective or humanitarian in your approach because you realize that looking after the community means looking after you rather than just looking after you. I don't know if Aldo, if you want to add anything to that. Uh, it's the, 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 this, this step of uh, appropriation, the step of the, when you establish bonds of affection. Uh, for the Stoics, establishing a bond of affection is seeing the order as a part of himself of yourself, sorry. Seeing the order is a part of yourself. Uh, for example, when, uh, um, when an animal, uh, mother is a mother, he tr it, 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 she tries to defend his sons by all means available, even risking her own life. Why? The strikes will say that the, the animal do, does it because he, he, he sees his offspring as a part of herself. Uh, in, in the humans, it's, it's, it is the same thing. Uh, mm. The first relation, important relation of human beings, of course, is that one established between mother and son or daughter. And then uh, the, 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 the human being starts to doing it with other human beings. Because we are communitarian beings, as Musonio mm. says, uh, we are like bees in this sense. Okay. Yeah. And keeping this in mind, the Stoics think that the correct action in society is a, a, an action uh, which aims at uh, the good of the individual and the good of the community. Hmm. So, uh, stoicism is, is neither egoistic nor altruistic, but uh, it uh, aims at achieving the communitarian action, an action which is good both for in the individual and, and for the, the, com the community. Hmm. So, so yeah. it's kind of like it's, it's, it's a, a recognition that really the only purpose for me taking care of myself is so that I can take care of more people. Right. It's like, it's like, as I care more, as I really take care of myself, more people will benefit from my strength, my courage, my justice, my virtue, you know, like my wisdom, all that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. The virtues make, make no sense without the recognition of other people. Hmm. Yes. Virtues okay. Always have a social aspect. Epictetus says this when he, he talks about Zeus, that when Zeus uh, is the, the rainmaker, to be the rainmaker, 
he at the same time he helps people. He helps people sending rain to the world. So mm. the for the Stoics virtues are at the same time social and individual. Mm. Yeah, this is this is really interesting to me because I've I've been thinking about this a lot lately. This idea of okay, well, you can't just chuck the idea out to humanity and say act virtuously, because I mean, who knows what virtue is and how do you figure it out? And there's so many things that you could you know argue over. But is so what you're saying is communitarianism is almost uh, could it be used as a framework? to say virtue is what is good for is what is good for the hive of humanity the bee hive of humanity right if, if it's good for other people if it's good for me but even then uh, i mean when you start questioning is it good for humanity how do you get past the roadblocks there because there's so many arguments that you could have over if something is good for humanity or if it's not good for humanity like this is a question that i want to throw out there to both of you how do you judge a virtuous action over a, an action of vice? Like, how do you make that distinction? Even when you are saying, if it's good for humanity, it's good. For, it's good. Do, do you want to talk uh, uh, a little, Kai? I think Kai could. I think uh, I, I emphasize the fact, and it's not just me, a lot of contemporary strokes do so, and obviously the angry strokes do, that virtue cannot exist in a vacuum. I can't be just just to myself. Now, I can on some very tiny level, right? So if I lived in a desert island, I could be just just to myself. But I think that would be missing the point because I even, as, as your listeners know, I added a circle because the environment, not just what's good for humanity as, as a species, but as good for humanity as part of the bigger whole. So even if I'm on a desert island, I can't sit and burn it just because I'm you know, angry with the world that no helicopters come and rescue me. Because in the end, if the helicopter does not come and rescue me, I'm now living on a burnt island. And I use that very specifically because the climate breakdown, we're literally burning the planet that wrong. So I would say it's extended, but yes, this is something that the Stoics traditionally didn't recognize, even though the environmental pollution was pretty high. If you look at the ice cores, it was just as high as just before the Industrial Revolution. So we had to go from ancient Roman period, the lead mining, to the Industrial Revolution to reach the same level of environmental um, challenges. So it's not something that they were completely oblivious to, but obviously the, the scope, the expanse of it is different. Um, when I ask myself, okay, how do I know what's good? Um, you get various viewpoints. This is why I think the traditional strength view of the strength of God is very important as the as an objective uh, yardstick that isn't part of me. So the strengths would say, well, it's, they would use a different answer. They'd say, well, it's the fragment of your soul that chorus this goes back to a conversation we have with Will Jonkov fragment of your soul that corresponds to the fragment you know to the logos would show you what is what is right so it, it's an, there is a sort of it's different to christianity for example because you inherently believe in stories that humans are good there is no original sin where we are inherently bad and we need god to rescue us in that sense in the stoics and it's like we are inherently good and we we need to connect ourselves with god so that we continue to be uh, good. And then when we fail to do that, we are, as Marcus really said, cut off. We cut ourselves off from mm. society. So, uh, or the world in general. So how could then you say, okay, but well, how do I know what's good for humanity? How do I, how do I know that? So if I don't use it, this is the problem I have if you don't have a stoic God or at least the essence of a logos involved, because then I have a very sort of 
well, what I think is good for Kai must be good for Aldo because that should be good for Simon. And that's the, that's the problem, that if you remove this theology, you get into really shaky ground about what you think is good because you're mm. not in a strict viewpoint. You're not corresponding to that fragment of the essence of the Logos, which is not true for such. It's more like rationality, which mm. you can translate as truth, but it would have different connotations depending on who you talk to, about what truth is. So they say, mm. no, you are corresponding to what is rational. So, and then you would say, okay, so how does the mother know that what is good for her is good for the child, right? She instinctively, I would say in most cases, a mother or a father would instinctively know that feeding their child was good. I don't think many people would have to be told that or have to have a legal framework to be like, if you don't feed your child, that's murder. I don't think most parents would ever have to kind of weigh that up. Um, that's why I, I think that the, the research that Aldo's team are doing about how we can use this in a contemporary context is very important because there are no answers if you don't understand the, theology. So mm. we tend to, unfortunately, say things like Seneca said, if we, that the people are our guides, you know, our teachers are our guides, we can do whatever we want. That's not what he said. He says, once you have the ground, you know, once you have the groundwork done, once you understand the text that we're writing, once you really get to get a handle on stories, then when you finally understand this, you can then re recognize the difference between what is useful, as in what is really guiding, and what is teaching, but you can apply in a slightly different way. It doesn't mean, literally, how contemporary Stoics have taken it, to be like, I can get rid of whatever I want, because there are teachers, not our guides. That's not what Seneca was saying at all. In fact, if you read the entire context of what he said, it was very clear. Once you have the groundwork, once you know what you're doing, once you recognize that, that uh, the virtues don't exist in the vacuum, once you, mm. you really understand the fragment, of the, the, the fragment of your soul, the physical fragment, the stories of physical, the physical fragment of your soul, how it corresponds to the logos, and how that dictates how you should behave, then using that, and only after years of training, can you then decide what you would reject for you personally and what you keep. Mm. And this mm. is the problem, that we suddenly go into stories and go, Seneca said, I can get rid of everything. Yay, it's like a disclaimer. Like, I can do everything I want to do in stoicism, but when I don't like it, I can change it because Seneca gave me permission. <laughs> that's not what is, mm. is being said. So yeah, that's a very difficult question, but how do I know what's good for society? I, I, I would say that I, I, do, I do believe that most human beings, if educated, in the, educated reasonably and rationally, are good. I honestly believe mm. that. And obviously the people that don't, aren't behaving well, they believe they're rational. And then we, are, we need to have a dialogue. So the, the Stoics would say, how do you realize that something is good? for a person and therefore good for humanity discussing it mm. so if you and i discuss that and the idea is to discuss it not with a massive group so we're not necessarily into democracy and stoicism but with a small enough group to be like okay what is the issue why should not why should i behave or not behave in that way and get this kind of feedback when you did that last week you actually ruined my garden when you decided to i don't know throw the water out of your bucket into my garden it ruined my garden you know, that's not very pro-social. And then you say, okay, well, what can I do with the bucket of water? And then you might come to a conclusion together about where you should throw the bucket of water instead of on your, on your, you know, neighbors, in your neighbor's garden. And this is part of the problem that if you don't communicate and collaborate in a, in a way that, that brings people into the conversation because you're so interested in yourself, then you're unable, I really believe you are un unable to determine what is good because 
you're not doing that. What you're determining is what is good for you according to a very superficial understanding of stoicism. Because mm. what you are, if you're being individualistic, you don't understand stoicism. Like individualistic in a very selfish way, which does not take into consideration anybody else. You mm. don't understand stoicism. What you're, and, what you're practicing isn't stoicism. And this is, this is something that I'd like to, to ask Aldo as well. It's like, it's pretty clear to see that, especially in America, there is a very individualistic element of stoicism. Um, you know, Kai, we've already talked about, you know, your, your term, you know, Silicon Valley stoicism, um, you know, this uh, just, just hyper, you know, go, go, go lifestyle, get as much as I can, um, get as disciplined as I can, that sort of stuff. Um, and there's not a lot of focus on the wider community. How can I improve that? Aldo, what is it about the South American culture, the Brazilian culture that you think was so receptive to the communitarianism side of, of stoicism? Why do you think from day one, it just hit the ground running with, with, with a more community, community oriented view of stoicism? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question that we are trying to solve. <laughs> we, we don't know exactly why, because we, we thought everyone in the world uh, was approaching Stoicism in the same way as us, but it, it's different. Uh, uh, I don't have a, 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 an answer to, to this by now. What I know is that uh, it, uh, it came out spontaneously in, in our group. Uh, for instance, the for instance, the first guy that noticed uh, it was Carlos Zanegas, who is a stu student of mine. He realized that there, is, there was something strange in the political action of some Roman Stoics, like Musonius, like Seneca, like uh, Epictetus also. And he started to think about this. And I joined him in this research about the, the, this political status of the Stoics in Rome. And uh, everything started here, yeah, from this point. And uh, we started to develop this, this communitarian view, so to say, uh, thinking about the, the political activity of the ancient Romans. And at the same time, we, we have a, here in Brazil a strong community of friends who studied Epictetus and the Stoics. And this community uh, sprung na naturally, naturally. It, it was uh, spontaneously, so to say. Mm. And so we have these two elements, a community that uh, uh, developed spontaneously and reflection about the political action of the uh, ancient Roman Stoics. Mm. And I'd like to ask about that as well, because, you know, we are living in one of the most politically charged times in history. Um, and, and obviously we're, we're in, in the middle of, you know, I don't want to comment on what's going on in America at the moment, but, but just to say, through your research of the way that Epictetus and Masonius Rufus, these, these Roman Stoics, interacted with politics or thought about it, what do you think we can learn from them um, in, in order to uh, be more effective in our, I guess, political, you might say, activism or political 
uh, you know, a, a desire to change things from the top down, even though that's not the approach we would take. But how did the, the ancient Stoics kind of view politics? Yeah, uh, a friend of us, uh, Donato Ferrara, uh, says that uh, there is no place in the world where we need more Stoicism than in South America. <laughs> and I know you, you suspect why. <laughs> Mm. Because, uh, of course, you, you know that we have a lot of political problems, a lot of uh, social justice problems, uh, and uh, Stoicism has a lot of, of tools which will help us in this task of uh, doing a better country for everyone. For instance, Musonius Rufus has a discourse uh, where he, he says that instead of buying expensive things for your house, you should uh, help people to get uh, better education and to become better citizens. It's something that we miss a lot in Brazil. Mm. Oh, I know, of course, you know that in Europe and in Australia and in North America, uh, a good ed education is basically available for everyone, at least in the first degrees. But it's not a reality here. Here in Brazil, they have very rich pe people living in castles, so to say, and people living in slums uh, without education, without uh, uh, health system, without anything. So people in Brazil are not aware of this. These, these basic things that people are aware in Europe, in, in Australia, in, in, in North America, people in Brazil are not aware. So, uh, Stoicism can help us in Brazil in this task of making a better, a better civilization. Because people in Brazil just are not aware of basic points about what is a, a, a civilization. For instance, uh, people threw garbage on the streets, opened the, the, the door of the car and threw garbage on the streets. They do it because they have no idea about the community, about uh, so what is a social action. For you, mm -hmm. maybe it, it, that's why it's so different. In Europe, in, in Australia, in North America, you are aware of this. You know that's a, a bad thing to throw a paper or garbage on the street because it, you damage uh, the, the, your community. But in Brazil, we don't have this conscious. We are not aware of this. Mm. It's, it's strange. I know you think, how, how can it be? But it, it is as it is, unfortunately. And so, uh, I don't know if it's the right expression, uh, Stoicism has a civil, civilizatory um, asset for us, mm. utility for us. Yeah. And, and, and I just think it's so wonderful that you know, I just keep on thinking of like 50,000 people, like 50,000 people reading the words of Epictetus for the first time. Uh, you know, if you change one person's life and they go on to become a better person and to help yeah. their community more and to, and, and to help their family and their country, it's like that does enough good for you to be satisfied with your efforts, right? But let alone 50,000 people in, in these countries where, like you say, a lot of people don't have that framework for understanding what is a good decision, what's a bad decision in terms of the community. 
And, you know, it's just such a beautiful thing. I can't wait to see this, you know, continue to flourish throughout South America. But something that you wrote in, uh, well, you, you pointed it out. You pointed out a quote from Epictetus and, and you kind of discussed it in your article on modern Stoicism. This idea that the Stoics kind of separate the soul from the body sort of thing. So the soul is kind of your portion of the divinity um, and so there's, you know, you want to connect with that so that you can find out what's good for your soul. And you also want to, um, be careful not to connect too much with the body because that's kind of the animalistic side of things. Right. And I think that there was a, a really great analogy there of being at a banquet. And so, you know, for your body, it would be, uh, probably advantageous to take the larger portion of the meal and, and leave the rest for everyone else. But for the soul, the community, the people, it wouldn't be so advantageous. Um, And so can you kind of talk to me a little bit more about, um, I guess, the way that Epictetus or Masonius Rufus talked about this, that kind of separation there, and and how that can help people uh, to make more virtuous decisions? Oh, yeah, this is a very interesting point. Um, by now, I'm studying uh, uh, an article of Anthony Long about this relationship between body and soul in Stoicism, which is not easy at all. It's a very uh, uh, sophisticated relation established. And basically, we can say that uh, there are some passions that spring from the body. I would say. Uh, our individual desires, so to say, your desire to eat, your desire for sex, your desire for money, your desire for pleasure in general. And these these desires, they are not uh, communitarian in origin. But your soul or the rational part of it, the hegemonicon or the hegemonicon, yeah, it's uh, both rational, ethical, and social. For the Stoics, these things coincide, coincide or coincide? Coincide. Coincide. These things coincide. You cannot be rational without being ethical and social. So you can, uh, uh, you can balance your desires to the social needs you must face while living in a society, you know, for, uh, as you said, in a, in a, in a, uh, when uh, eating with someone else, we will not eat everything that is in front of you because it's not, even if, if you find pleasure, if your stomach finds pleasure doing it, you as in a social animal cannot find it uh, appropriate. Because you 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 take you 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 leave people without food, for instance. Okay, so the reason has this whole of the role, sorry, of uh, equilibrating, of uh, balancing your desires in order to meet the needs of social life, of the communitarian life, and you have only the reason to do this. You have no other power. To, to do this task. Uh, and if we, we don't, you are not educated, 
we cannot use reason properly. That's why the Stoics stresses, uh, stresses so much about uh, learning logic, about uh, uh, training your, your, your thought, because otherwise you cannot do anything good. You cannot uh, equilibrate, you cannot balance your desires. Yeah, that's really, it, it is such a complex thing to kind of figure out, right? But I, I've just been wondering for so long, you know, like it just doesn't make sense to just stop at saying, well, you know, rationality, that's your gift. That's your key towards acting more virtuously. And, and, you know, this Kai is kind of, you know, where we might say that the theology of stoicism comes into the game. It's like, okay, once you get to rationality, you need to go beyond that and say, well, where does the good come from? What is the good? Um, you know, how do you figure that out? And, and it is a very complicated thing, which I think we're all trying to figure out. In other words, uh, reason for us is a capacity, mm. not just a gift but also capacity, a capacity that you must develop as the capacity of walking. If you don't, do not train, if you do not walk, you lose this capacity. Same thing with uh, our reason. And it's not an easy task, an easy task to, to train reason, to develop reason. Basically, stoicism is a way to develop your reason to meet, to face these challenges of social uh, life and the life in the cosmos mm. it's not yeah. easy yeah absolutely and and i really like that this idea of, of of it being something that you develop obviously and 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 you know we all instinctually know that that you don't just have rationality and you're going to be perfect and act perfectly all the yeah. time the reason we know that is because we don't act perfectly all the time even though we think we have rationality uh but uh but it helps to see it as something that you can develop over time. And I think that that's what the, the Stoics were obviously aiming at, right? They were trying to gain a deeper connection, respect and, and, and awareness of their rationality and their ability to decipher what is wrong and what is right. And sorry, go on. Yeah. Uh, that's why logic is so important for them, because without studying logic, you go, you, you give assent to sophisms, and giving assent to sophisms leads you to to have a, a false vision, a false vision of the world, and act in a bad way also. That's why it's so important, for instance, for them to study sophism, sophisms in order to not to do not give assent to them. As we see nowadays uh, in politics and uh, in our personal lives, so uh, it's a very important thing to know. In Stoicism, uh, virtue is knowledge, and knowledge is virtue. Mm. Yeah. So uh, uh, when you know something, this knowledge leads you to a good action. And if you do not know this absence of knowledge, you lead lead you to a bad action. Mm. 
Yeah. And this is, this is what's so, um, I guess, beneficial and also uh, challenging about the time that we live in is that there is so much information out there. <laughs> There's so much knowledge out there, right? And so it's, it's a pretty daunting task. And you think, well, on the one hand, it offers a massive opportunity, but on the other hand, you could put up pretty much any you know, problem, problem to solve for humanity and both sides will find some information that supports that their way of doing things is the better way of doing things, right? And so, you know, like you said, going back to logic, that's the study of, okay, well, which side is right? Let's, let's decipher their arguments. Let's try and not fall for, a, you know, for sophism, as you said. Let's, you know, try and get to the right, to the bottom of this, this, this question. And I, I wanted to ask uh, something of, of both of you, because um, there's, there's actually this, this I want to read this quote here, actually. I'm going to grab this out. This is a quote that you cited in, uh, in, in your article, and, and it was from, from Epictetus in the Enchiridion. And I, I highlighted this ages ago, and when, when I read this in your article, I was like, damn, that's such a great quote that we all need to listen to. And I want to have a discussion about this. But he says, if you decide to do something, don't shrink from being seen doing it, even if the majority of people disapprove. If you're wrong to do it, then you should shrink from doing it altogether. But if you're right, then why worry about how people will judge you? And this kind of aligns with something that I've been thinking lately, which is that we really need uh, at least one or many Socrates in our time right now, right? Socrates was the person who came along and said, you know what, no matter what your laws are, you know, you, you tyrants, uh, I'm going to live how I think is correct, you know, what, what I think is virtuous. And yeah, like you can sentence me to death, but at the end of the day, um, you know, he, he wasn't one to shirk from doing what he thought was right, right? And so we, we need to take that attitude on today, especially with, like you say, you know, there's governments all around the world doing terrible things, polluting the earth, um, you know, civil unrest, there's terrible things going on everywhere. We need to have a little bit of that. Well, you know, once I know what is right, I'm going to do it no matter what. And I'm not going to worry about what people think of me. Uh, how, do you, how do you think you, you get to that stage where you have the confidence to be able to do things that are right despite the public opinion saying that it's wrong or the public opinion not approving of your decisions. What, what is the process to get to that stage? Please, Kai. Yeah, I'll chuck it over to Kai. Well, I, I think that it's not something that you do at a certain point. I think you constantly do it. You're constantly checking yourself. Right, you're constantly because you want to be pro-social as a stoic, so you don't want to upset people's feelings unnecessarily. Right, it's not about mm. we, it's not that because feelings are not bad; they're indifferent. So I'm like, do I want to upset my uncle's feelings unnecessarily? Like that, his feeling is not necessarily a bad thing. So as a stoic, it's like, well, actually, I don't want to unnecessarily upset anybody because there's no need to. So you're constantly mm. in that that balance of like what is you know what is the correct course of action in an ideal world it's very simple but in the practice it's like there's so many when i look at justice is how i how i speak to somebody what the, what words i use to correct them 
uh, where they're at. How can I be as fair to them as I can be based on the fact they're five years old or the fact that they're a new stoic or the fact that they, they're 29 years old, but they've never read a book before. So, you know, they've only read one book. And so they think that that's the book. How can I, how can I correct them? So there's a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of, concepts we have to, to manage it's not just like okay i know for example that throwing rubbish out the window is bad i know that's bad because of the reasons i just told me however the person i'm educating they might not know that and to be fair to them i have to try to be like okay why are they doing that and how what is the best way to talk to them about this because that's also about being fair right I can't just launch into an academic discussion with somebody about why they shouldn't throw something out the window. Even if I know that's the reason, if I can give you evidence, sometimes you have to break it down to somebody and you have to be fair to them and you not give them the benefit of the doubt. I wouldn't go that far, but certainly try to see from their perspective why they're doing something. And they might be like, well, I don't care. And then you can correct them. And they might say, well, I didn't realize it was wrong. So I'm giving some, literally, I've heard this in Latin America, I'm giving somebody a job. If I throw something out the window, I'm giving a person a job. So I'm doing them a favor. Like they, I have, honestly, in Colombia, I heard that quite often. So um, then you say, well, actually, that's a really good place that that person's coming from. They're actually thinking about giving somebody a job. They don't think that maybe that person could do something else. They think that, it, that there's not a job that that person could do. So then you start to understand that you're looking at it from their perspective. I'm not asking, you know, no, it's not empathizing. I mean, I agree with empathizing, but certainly, sympathizing with them trying to understand at least why they are reasoning the way they are based on a discussion so you're not trying to be them or think like them you're just literally asking them why and i think that we're just we're just not doing that in society we're not asking a debate even something you just said about who is right it might be that somebody has some right here on the left for example and some right on the right so it's not even it's not even deciding who's right which part of the argument is correct so not yes. the person. We don't judge the oh the left wing or the right wing or the green chariots versus the red chariots. They're more correct. It's more like which part of your argument is correct, and which part is not correct, and that's difficult because then you're always going to be in that middle where you're not pleasing the left, for example, or the right or the red chariot team and the, on the green chariot team. You're actually just saying I'm interested in what is reasonable, regardless of who says it. So it is a very unpopular position to be in. I do think most at the moment, at least, and it will change. I think the academic community or the, or the, at least the authors in contemporary studies, we have a bigger, we have a bigger responsibility. We have a bigger obligation. And my concern is that if you have contemporary stoics writing about individual pursuits, is the kind of people that you attract to stoicism are individualistic. So I would argue if perhaps with Aldo or discuss, I should say. So perhaps the, the reason why the Brazilian community was social pro-social humanitarianism communitarianism was a pro the pro-social way of thinking about the world is because the people that were, up, were doing the movement were pro-social and they wanted to build a community and they wanted to disseminate information for the good of the community because the because the roots of the brazilian tree was being watered by you know communal um desires what sprung up was a stoicism that was communal and you can see that that is changing a little bit in Brazil because they're reading English contemporary stoic stuff and you're getting in these people who have no interest. And I'm sorry to, to say that about Brazil. It's sad because they have this, this hasn't been the case. But now because there's like these translations into Portuguese of contemporary stoic material 
and I don't know how, I'll emphasize the word contemporary rather than stoic, you're getting a whole load of people interested in quote unquote stoicism that don't share Aldo's waters, like, like they've been mm. watered by this communal, communal sense. So I would say the reason why Brazil was communal was because the leaders were communal. So the people that I attract to stoicism are the people in my, in my case, are people interested in the planet and the environment. And the people that I don't attract so much are the people interested in, I don't know, stocks and shares, because I don't write about those things, not that they're wrong, but I don't write about how you can apply that to the straight framework. So we, you can really see we are who we attract as well. So if stoicism is becoming selfish and individualistic, which it is even in Brazil, unfortunately, increasingly so, that's a poor reflection, a very poor reflection on the English-speaking stoic wealth. It really, the, the, the trade books and the commercial material, not the academic material. And then you start to see, wait a minute, we need to be very careful, very careful what stoicism, what fr framing we give stoicism and what we, what we focus on. So that to me is like something that's very sort of inherent to me that we have to, we have to solve, we have to really grapple with. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Can I talk a very important thing? Um, recently, uh, we founded a Facebook group. It was not founded by me, but they invited me to, to coordinate the group. By now, it has something about 4,000 people in it. And I was shocked about some approach of stoicism that uh, came from, from Europe and the United States. For instance, the, the, the red pill. <laughs> I could not believe someone was using stoicism for, for this purpose. Uh, I came in, in contact with it with Kelly Rudolph, uh, a friend of an uh, English friend. No, she's American, but she lives in England, a friend of mine. And I, I was shocked. How can someone use stoicism as a weapon against women, hmm. it's unthinkable. And I realized that a lot of Brazilians were following it. And uh, I decided that it, it was unacceptable. So I started start to fight back. Uh, as you asked first, uh, once you realize that uh, you must do something, you must do it uh, regardless if the people you, you, you like it or not. So we start to fight uh, back and we, we realized also that they, these, 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 these red pill guys were linked with fascism. How do you say fascism? Fascism. Fascism. Mm. fascism. So uh, we have no, no other thing to do than fighting back. And showing our position. Otherwise, stoicism will be destroyed in Brazil. It will not be a good thing anymore to the society, but it will be a, a venom thing. Mm. You know that in Brazil, it's a very sexist country. You don't need a red pill to, to deteriorate even more the situation. Yeah. It's awful. Stoicism has this very good aspect also, uh, talking about the equality among sexes. You know, the, uh, the famous Mussolini's uh, discourses about women, that they, they should be educated uh, in the same way as men, and etc. And it's a good thing for us. 
It's, a, it's not something that Brazilians uh, press, in fact. Mm. Violence against women in Brazil is terrible. Sexism is terrible. So you don't need a red pill to, to make things worse. So uh, we decided, me in first place, and, and, and I, I told the others to do the same, same thing, to fight back, to show what for, is for us the, the real stoicism, which is this communitarian stoicism, which is uh, this stoicism that talks about the quality of sexes, which is the stoicism that talks about fraternity of mankind, of humankind. Mm. So, uh, yeah, basically, and, and we decide that something with your reason, as Kay said, that you should do something, and you perceive that it's the better thing to do, you must do regardless of what other people will think about it. And as you said, it's a very Socratic thing to do. Mm. And, and this, is, this is an important point to, to really push out there, is that through an individualistic framework, uh, the stoic indifference can actually go down a pretty bad path, which is like, well, I focus on myself and what they think, that's none of my business. What they think, what they do, it's none of my business, which is true in one sense. But at the same time, if you bring the communitarianism into it, it is my business, but only once I have learned to decipher what is good and what is bad. Once you've learned that, once you feel as though you're in a point where you can rationally make a good logical argument for why somebody is acting incorrectly, especially for the good of the community, you, ha you have a responsibility, right? Do you think that we have a responsibility as Stoics to speak up when we see injustice if we have first deciphered and, and deliberated, yes, this is a bad action that they're doing? Yeah, uh, uh, I, I, I see in Stoicism three levels of reality. The first level is our personal level, the level of our reason. Mm. We're thinking uh, about uh, inside yourselves, so to say. The second level is the social level. The other people uh, which we make contact every day. We cannot change their ideas about things because it's up to them but we can try to persuade them it's our task we cannot if you if, for instance if you say a lot of nazis doing a manifestation in, in front of, of your door you cannot lock yourself inside and say oh it's not up to me it's, it's not stoic mm. As Epictetus talks about this in, in his discourse, in book two, discourse five and six, he says, external things are indifferent, but the use of them is not indifferent. Hmm. External things are the material for our choice. Without the external things, we, we, we cannot be virtuous. We, we only can be virtuous if we work on 
these external things. They don't have a value by themselves, but they use of then make all the difference. That's why you have a virtue, to make a good use of external things, or as Epictetus says, to uh, make a good use of presentations, of, of fantasia. Of impressions, mm. yeah. So uh, you, you know, you have to be aware that you cannot change the idea of the orders, but, but you must try to persuade them to, to, do the, to think about what is the bear, the best thing to do. What is the best thing for you? Mm. So if you see a lot of faces of nazis or, yeah, or, sorry, or the, social groups uh, making propaganda, you cannot be in silence. You say, oh, I don't care. It's not up to me. I'm stoic. It's not up to me. I will be <laughs> locked in my room. It's not stoic at all. It's a yeah. coward <laughs> action. Yeah, it's a coward. Yeah, <laughs> so that's it. Courage. Sometimes you need more courage. Yes. Uh, you, you, uh, repeating, you, you must be aware that you cannot change what they think. But at least you must try. The best example of this is Musonius again. Uh, when Marcus Antonius Primus was invading Rome in uh, 20th of December of 69, he stood in front of the soldiers and said, please, don't go. Let's think about peace. Let's put the, the, the arms down. He was not successful, but he did what he, he could. At some point, the soldiers said, oh, or Musonius, uh, if you don't, do not, <laughs> if you don't go out, we'll kill you. And he, and he, he, he thought, oh, I, I did what I, I could. But he did something. He was not just assisting the, the soldiers entering home. You know that it was a terrible invasion. Thousands of Romans died by the reins of the, their own fellow citizens. But at least he did something. And we must do something when we see injustice, when we see terrible things being doing or being said. This, it's the stoic point of view. You cannot just uh, assist as it, if it was not with you. It's uh, as if it is not your problem. It's your problem yeah. because it happens in your society, in, your, in, in the face of earth. So it's your problem also. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think what's really important for people to realize is that it, it is your problem when you are at the stage where you can absolutely make a, when you know for sure, when you've logically worked it out, yes, it's the wrong thing to do. We need to fix this. That's when it becomes your responsibility. But, you know, I probably like many people listening to this am well aware of the many circumstances where I have learnt a new idea and then all of a sudden I think that somebody else is doing something wrong and I go and point it out to them. And then because I only know this much when there's actually this much to know, uh, I just fall on my, on my face, right? And it's like the ego jumps in there and tells you on every step of the journey, yeah, you're smart enough to point out their flaws. You're smart enough when, when really you should be focused on your own flaws, try to figure yourself out first and then try to solve 
the family or the community or the country. But it's so important for people to really be aware of the, the power that your ego has over you. Cause if you go out there and try to change society, but you haven't figured your own self out, <laughs> it, it's, it's going to go terribly for you. But yeah. you know, Aldo, I want to, I want to ask you one more question, uh, probably more on a personal note. Uh, so, you know, you've, you've obviously been a pioneer bringing Epictetus to the Portuguese language, 50,000 people reading it already you know, millions of people around the world um, who this could open it up to. Uh, what, what, is the, what is your ideal outcome? What would you love to see happen as a result of the spreading of Stoicism throughout South America and around the world in the Portuguese, Portuguese language? What would you love for people to take from it and, and how do you want the world to change as a result? Well, um, in the first place, uh, we intended to create in Brazil a community of researchers uh, of Epictetus. We, 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 we made it. It's done. And, and I, I, I hope that the next generation will increase it and more researchers will, will appear and study Epictetus and spread his thoughts. In, in the second place, as you said, and it, it was something I, I, I was talking yesterday with David Fieder. Uh, in Stoicism, you have three points. First, inner peace. As you said, you cannot, uh, cannot try to change the world and, and lose your peace. It, it, you, 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 you achieve nothing for you and for, for anyone else. In the first place, you must achieve inner peace. In the second place, you must uh, try as much as you can to act in a communitarian way. And it is made in a lot of, a lot of uh, different ways. Uh, for instance, if you are, are a physician, you can reserve a part of your time to help poor people. I, I give an, an, an example uh, of my childhood. My, my, uh, the physician of our family used to reserve the mornings to attend people who could not pay. Hmm. And in the afternoons, he used to attend people who could pay. So he divided his time helping both people who could pay and people who could not pay. And so uh, acting in a communitarian way does not mean necessarily be an activist, but do doing well what you know to, how to do. If you're a physician, you try to, to, be, to use this, this knowledge socially. If you are a lawyer, same thing, and so on. And, and, and eventually you can also uh, be in a manifestation, as I, I present in London last year, the, the greatest manifestation. It was very beautiful. Like protest. Mm. Protest, protest. And in the third place, what for me is the most important thing is the thing that we are missing in the world. As both Martin Luther King and Gandhi realized, to develop this sense of fraternity 
among humankind. It's mm. something that is obviously missing. Uh, uh, the ancient Stoics realized that it's not is an easy task. It's not natural to establish these bonds among cultures, because by 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 by, by uh, uh, our natural impulse, uh, we tend to to be uh, emotionally attached to people that are like us, to people that uh, speak the same language as us. The, to people that live in our, in our country. But uh, especially now that the world is becoming one thing, we must develop this sense of uh, fraternity. Without this, we will lose the battle, both to save the world and to save the, the humankind. Hmm. And it only can be achieved through philosophy. I, I cannot, I can't see it being doing being, being by religion. Religion does not do it. Religion divides people. I, it's my personal, <laughs> I, mm. I think this. Yeah. Religion divides people. Religion do not uh, con con congregate people. But uh, philosophy can uh, do it. As we are doing now, you are in Australia, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Kate is, is Lisbon. Are you in Lisbon by now? In Portugal. Yeah. In Portugal. And I am in Brazil. And we yeah, are having this conversation. And we have a lot of ideas in common. Could we talk about, uh, could we have this conversation in, in another situation? I cannot see it. So mm. Stoicism is doing it already. So yeah. it's, uh, the, the, I think this is the great gift of Stoicism, uh, to give to, to the humans the opportunity to develop a sense of, uh, of fraternity and also to develop, to develop a sense of love for nature, for, for the cosmos. Mm. I love that. You know, Aldo, I, I want to thank you so much. I mean, uh, I, I want to share with you, you know, when I first started doing this podcast, when I first started learning about Stoicism, I definitely had that very individualistic view of it, you know, and, and uh, I felt as though the most important thing about Stoicism was the aspect of looking at your most inner recesses of your mind to try and really connect with what is uniquely you, right? And that's, that's a massive part of Stoicism, but, but over the past few months since starting the podcast again for a new direction and really trying to understand the philosophy, I've come to understand that that focus inwardly on your own mind only works in the framework of Stoicism if you also focus on the vastness of your connection to everything. You need to view everything and how you play a role in that as well as your own self and how you play a role in that and you know i want to make a commitment to you as well and you know like going forward in this show one of my big focuses is getting people to see just how important it is that they focus on how they can individually help everybody around them and and you know this is such an important aspect of stoicism so i want to thank you for what you're doing it's brilliant uh, it's you know it's going to change generations forever. Um, and, you know, Kai, obviously, thank you so much for recommending that Aldo comes on the show. This has been wonderful and, and we'll have to continue the discussion very soon. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. Thanks, thanks again for, for inviting me.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to sign up for email updates, join my Patreon meetup groups that we hold weekly, or if you'd like to offer feedback or suggestions for future guests or topics on the show, then you can head to simonjedrew.com. There you'll also find information about how we can work one-on-one together with my alignment coaching, based around the philosophical principles found in Stoicism. Finally, if you are on Facebook, then I'd love to see you in our group, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll talk to you next time.